from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to the CER Bulletin podcast. My name is Beth Oppenheim and I'm a researcher here at the CER. And today in the podcast studio, I have with me John Springford, Deputy Director here at the CER, and Ian Bond, Director of Foreign Policy. And I have Luigi Scazzieri, a research fellow on the line from Brussels. Hello, everyone. Hi, Beth. Hello. So this week is a bulletin podcast, and every two months, the CER publishes the bulletin on three important European topics. As ever, each researcher is going to get asked three quick-fire questions on their piece, and we'll have five minutes each to brief you on their argument. It's a challenge, I know. So um, in this episode, we're going to explore EU fears of the UK deregulating to become a so-called Singapore on Thames after Brexit. We're going to be looking at the redrawing of borders in the Balkans and Italy's latest confrontations with the EU. So let's start with you, John, and your piece, The EU Should Worry Less About Singapore on Thames. So we had the summit at Salzburg last week. A lot of people in the UK were actually quite surprised at how strongly the EU came out against the Chequers proposals. Why did the 27 reject the proposals? I mean, I think the the real reason why they rejected them was political. They have been pretty clear internally, although they've been a bit less willing to say this in public, that they want to make Brexit binary they want to make Britain either be in the single market as it stands or to be outside and have a free trade agreement. And, you know, the reason for that, and this is the thing that they're a bit less willing to say in public, is because they want to discipline domestic Europhobes, you know, Marine Le Pen in France, so that they don't try something of something similar. But I think that the reasons that they used to dismiss Chequers were much more technical and much more problematic. They essentially say that by allowing the UK to have partial membership of the single market just in goods, that this would allow the UK to be able to get a big competitive advantage because goods are made up of services. I mean, think of an iPhone which has lots of apps on it. And so the UK could deregulate a lot in services and then be able to get competitive advantage in goods. And that's the part that I'm much more sceptical about. Okay, so do you think that the EU does have a good reason to be worried about this then? I, I don't. I mean, a lot of the services inputs, as they're called, that go into goods manufacturing aren't really regulated by the EU and often aren't regulated very much at all. I mean, if you think about what a manufactured good requires in terms of services, then we're thinking engineering, we're thinking design, we're thinking marketing. You know, you might even think about the cleaner that cleans up the factory floor. And they aren't really regulated by the EU. So to argue that you know, the UK has to remain within the EU services regulations is a bit problematic. The only services input that I could think of that uh, might confer a reasonably large competitive advantage is financial services. So you could imagine that the UK might deregulate lending to business, but there's very little reason to think that the UK would do that. Um, The UK's financial services regulation is largely set by two bodies independent of government, the Bank of England and the Financial 
Conduct Authority, they have made it very clear that what they want to ensure is financial stability um, and to ensure that banks don't get into trouble and other institutions don't get into trouble. So I think I think that we can discount that as a as a as a likely route to competitiveness for the UK. I mean, I would just say that the UK public shows no sign of any kind of interest in ripping up environmental and social employment law. That would require the government to say no to five weeks paid holiday a year, which is uh, um, enshrined in, in EU law, then you can see why. So if deregulation is probably off the table, given the lack of popular appetite for that in the UK, what other options does the UK have to seek competitive advantage? There are some other ways in which Britain could try and gain a competitive advantage against the EU, but Brexit is going to make all of those harder. Um, one is that it could try and produce better quality products than EU businesses. But in order to be able to do that, you have to kind of rise up the value chain and have lots of innovation and create lots of new exciting products. And there are three ways in which Brexit is going to make that harder. One is that um, there's going to be a fiscal hit to Brexit, which means that your research and science budget is going to be harder. The second way is um, through bringing in as many highly skilled people as possible. But given the current politics of the UK, that seems unlikely. The third way is by getting multinational corporations who tend to be more research intensive and innovative to come and invest. But they are less willing to invest in the UK if there are big trade barriers between the UK and the EU. The second way that you can try and improve competitiveness is by driving up productivity, i.e., you produce more output for any given input, particularly, you know, the number of, you know, labour hours that you have as a business. Brexit will also make that much harder because exporters in the UK tend to be much more highly productive than firms that serve the domestic market. So exporters are going to have a more difficult time after Brexit. So we should expect productivity to be lower than it would have been if Britain had remained. And then the final reason, sorry for the very long spiel, but the final reason, the final way that, that Britain could gain competitive advantage is by trying to cut costs or do things which end up devaluing sterling. This hasn't really worked in the past. Devaluing sterling is unlikely to work because the UK is um, embedded in value chains, which means that UK manufacturing how to import components they're then assembled and then they are sent out if you devalue sterling then those imported components are going to get more expensive so you don't get a cost advantage and in terms of cutting costs and cutting wages we've seen an extraordinary period of wage restraints wages are still lower than they were in 2008 in the UK but we haven't seen an amazing export performance off the back of that so all in all I think that the EU should worry a little bit less about the UK seeking competitive advantage, in, particularly in manufacturing. And, and while they have very good political reasons for making Brexit binary, I'm not sure that their technical arguments for it are as strong as they suggest. Thank you, John. So um, no waving goodbye to uh, our five weeks of paid holiday, hopefully. So I'm going to move us seamlessly from Singapore to Serbia. Ian, in your bulletin piece, you explained that the frozen conflicts of the Western Balkans seem to be thawing. And I know this piece has provoked a degree of intellectual turmoil for you. So it's quite possible that a deal will be struck between Kosovo and Serbia, which would involve a land swap of territory in northern Kosovo, which has a Serb majority, for territory in southern Serbia with an Albanian majority. How likely do you think it is that an agreement is going to be reached? At this stage... Uh, it's still by no means certain. There's a lot of domestic opposition both within Serbia and in Kosovo. 
And there's a lot of international opposition. Um, Germany is against it. The UK is against it. So it may well not happen. But it is one of the most interesting developments that's taken place in the Western Balkans in the last decade. Above all, because the the Serbs and Kosovars are doing this for themselves. They're not be having a solution imposed on them by the international community. So when this idea was mooted in August, you told a journalist that changing borders in the Balkans would be like sticking your hand in a hornet's nest. Have you changed your mind? Uh, well, up to a point... Uh, I mean, there are a lot of people who have spent a lot of time in the Balkans who are very, very worried about this. Uh, they're worried because you have a situation in Bosnia where you've got a very dysfunctional state with ethnically based entities within it. And the Republika Srpska, the Serbian entity, uh, has always wanted to get closer to Belgrade and further away from Sarajevo, from the national authorities. And there are many people who say that if there is a, a land swap between Serbia and Kosovo, then Republika Srpska will say, well, you're creating two mono-ethnic states. You're not, but actually that's as good an approx approximation as any. You're creating two mono-ethnic states in the region. Why should we have to be in a multi-ethnic state with Bosniaks and Croats? So that's definitely a risk. And then in, Al in Macedonia, there is a risk around the Albanian minority who in the early 2000s almost launched a, a civil war feeling that they were being discriminated against. That's something where the lid has been on it for well over a decade, almost two decades now. But again, there are people who say, well, if you have swaps of land based on the ethnic majority living in that space, then why would the Albanians of Macedonia not want to partition Macedonia in their favour? So there are definitely some serious risks there. On the other hand, if Serbia and Kosovo can come to a solution that they agree on and that the two populations vote for in referendums, it seems to me it's quite hard for countries in the European Union to say, well, you can't do that because it might encourage somebody in Bosnia or Macedonia to do something that we don't like. I think we have to treat these conflicts on their own merits. And if the parties find a solution that works for them, it's quite difficult to justify saying to them, well, no, actually, you've got to carry on having the standoff that you've had for the last decade. So you said that there are some, there's some cause for optimism here in the sense that this isn't the international community imposing a solution. Do you think that the EU has a role to play, at least in supporting an agreement and minimising the risks involved? Yes, there's an important role for the EU to play because the reason that the two parties are trying to find a solution is that it's the route for them to EU membership, uh, and in the case of Kosovo, to being internationally recognised. There are still a number of countries, there are five countries within the EU even, which don't recognise Kosovo as an independent country. So for them, this is very important. But for the EU, making sure that there are no spillover effects, negative spillover effects, either to Macedonia or to Bosnia, is very important. And making sure that the rights of the remaining minorities, and there will still be minorities on, on either side of the new border, are protected. That's something where the EU has an important role to play. So I don't think it's going to be enough for the EU to say, well, let these guys get on with it, let it, let them sort it out for themselves, and you know, then we'll see. The EU needs to be actively in, engaged. It is a facilitator of the dialogue at the moment, but it needs to make sure that it has all the right 
pieces in place to buttress anything that the two of them can agree among themselves and to stop any bad actors in the region making use of, of the precedent in a way that would uh, destabilise other countries in the area. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Ian, for that very succinct briefing on a very complex situation. And now, Luigi, let's talk about Italy and the EU. It's been four months since Salvini's League and Di Maio's Five Star reached a coalition agreement. So what's happening now in Italy's coalition government? Fill us in. So, yes, um, as you say, four months have passed since the government have been, has been sworn in. And um, what we've seen is, an, in general, Rome taking a much more confrontational tone towards the EU, especially on, on migration, on the EU budget and on, on the Italian budget for next year. But what's really interesting is that Matteo Salvini, who's the leader of the League, has driven the, the government's agenda because, uh, because of his ability to take ownership of the, of the immigration issue which arguably is Italy's uh, most politically charged uh, issue. He's, uh, he's claimed credit for a reduction in the number of arrivals, which had actually been achieved by the previous government. And, uh, and he has shown that taking a tough stance towards the EU works in the sense that he has been able to force uh, some member states to, to take in migrants that, uh, that were on ships uh, Salvini was preventing from, uh, from disembarking in Italy. And, and as a result of this, the League has, has gained uh, votes in the polls uh, from, from about 17% in the general election to over 30% now. On the other hand, the Five Star has, uh, has been an, um, forced to compete on less uh, high-profile issues, such as the fight against corruption, the cost of, uh, of politics, and implementing its economic priorities. And so far, it's just lost prominence and, uh, in general, seems to, to be doing much less well than the League. So... What about the Italian stance towards the EU right now, which seems to have turned rather hostile? Can we expect this hostility towards the EU to continue? Uh, I think so, uh, because none of the issues uh, that concern Italians and that the League and the Five Star use uh, as political currency are likely to disappear soon. Namely, the disaffection that Italians feel towards the EU, this lack of solidarity, which they perceive largely due to the Eurozone crisis and to the to migration crisis, are, are going nowhere. So uh, the, um, the Five Star is going to continue to try and push for uh, an, an increase in social benefits, while the League will continue to, to push for burden sharing and immigration. Now, this, bear in mind, it is all happening at the time when, when the number of arrivals in Italy, the number of asylum seekers landing in Italy is extremely low. So uh, the League's position is not motivated by, by a crisis, but rather by, uh, by the need to make political capital. And actually, one of the really interesting things that's emerged in recent months is that the, the dynamic at the heart of the government is really one of competition. So it's a coalition which is very fragmented down the middle. Each party is, of course, pushing for its own priorities to be implemented, and this will be uh, will be reflected in the in the coming fight on the on the Italian budget, where each party is uh, trying to include their uh, respective promises. Although in some ways they have uh, scaled back their economic plans. So, for instance, the League is no longer planning to implement uh, a so-called flat tax straight away. This will be uh, happen over the course of several years and uh, of a much lower uh, ambition. And, and the five-star, their promised increase in benefits will also be rather delayed. That's interesting. So the competition that's kind of inherent within the coalition is generating conflict. And that sounds like that's yeah. not going to, to abate anytime soon. And in terms of the EU, yeah. is there anything that the EU can do to take some of the sting out of the coalition's rhetoric? Is this a case of better communication from the EU or is there some policy recommendations that the EU should be considering? 
Well, I think better communication can can surely be part of it. But um, the the reasons I mentioned why Italians have become more, more skeptical of the EU are, are not going to be easy uh, to uh, to address. In the sense, uh, a reform of the eurozone in a in a direction which would satisfy satisfy some of Italy's demands seems to no longer be on the cards. Macron's momentum has has very much waned. And, uh, and at the same time, migration, uh, if we look at the, the whole burden-sharing debate, there are huge fissures between uh, East uh, and, uh, and Central Europe, uh, which don't seem likely to be solved anyway, uh, anytime soon. So in a sense, that if there is going to be some progress, I see um, this to be more likely in the field of migration rather than economics. And this could take the form of some kind of permanent burden-sharing mechanism between a coalition of willing member states. So the same member states who have been taking in asylum seekers from Italy on an ad hoc basis could do so in, on a more permanent basis. Now, of course, in the short term, uh, the League and the Five Star would claim victory. They would say, look, we've managed to, to secure this huge concession from Europe. But I think ultimately such a visible sign of, of solidarity would be a very strong message and it would weaken the anti-European rhetoric of, uh, of the Italian government and perhaps begin to sap at, at this feeling of Euroscepticism which is becoming more and more widespread in Italy. Thank you, Luigi, and you've given us a note of optimism there. You know, there, there are tools in the EU's toolbox to address this. So thank you very much for calling in from Brussels. Thank you, Beth. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.